Hello, and welcome to Knoll Country for Old Men. We're a podcast about board games, tabletop role-playing games, and tabletop war games. And today, we're talking about the spooky stuff. It's Ravenloft time! Spooky! Yeah! I'm your host, Troy, my pronouns are he, him, and joining me from the depths of the crypt, they live! And I have just arisen from my crypt and am drinking the elder brain juice. My name's Ed, I'm the sleepy one today, and my pronouns are they and them. Yes, and we're gonna talk about all the classic horror stuff that has been around for a lot longer than I thought it had, actually. When I started doing the research on this one, I thought Ravenloft was a little slightly more modern setting. It's the first one that we've talked about that has its a modern setting book for the current edition. So that's a plus if you actually want to play in it. I remember seeing, I don't know if it was an original edition of Ravenloft, but definitely an older version of Ravenloft at one of our used bookstores. I didn't check to see like when it actually came out, but I was like, huh. That's interesting. I'm probably never going to get around to it because it's it was probably like a second edition book. Yes, second edition, the Realm of Terror set. Uh, we'll we'll talk about that in a bit because first we have to do the weekend hobby, hobby, hobby. I'll go first. My weekend hobby's been pretty good. Um, a week ago, I did board games with some friends. We played Red Dragon Inn. We played Soul. Uh, which is a game I got off Kickstarter and have managed to finally play again after like four years. I, for a second there, I was thinking S-O-U-L and I was going to make a Dark Souls joke. And then I remembered, oh wait, no, we played that game and it's a good one. Yeah, uh, that'll be the board game corner for this week now that I've Ooh. had another chance to play it. Um, and my D&D games, the Wednesday one was postponed due to half the people not being able to really access the game. Um, one was driving, the other one could only use his phone, so that that really... Hey man, as long as, long as you've got like somebody who can like proxy roll for you, you can, you can join in on a Zoom call for some D&D. Yes, you can, but... Uh, we were doing this really cool, big sky pirate fight. And I was like, I would really like everyone to show up for the cool, awesome sky pirate fight. And not for half the people to be like, I can't tell what's going on. So we pushed it back a week. Fair enough. Um, this is something that I've been trying to run, that I've been like looking forward to running. And I think everyone's looking forward to playing in. So moving in a week worked out okay. Uh, the other party is off on the beginning of their adventure into the jungles of Cuba, which involves, well, it involved a lot of them wandering around town talking to people and, like, getting equipment for their expedition, ranging from uh, some new magical items provided to them by House Kenneth, including um, boots of spider climbing that summon spiders to carry you around. Uh, wild magic arrows that when you hit someone, they make a roll on the wild magic table. Flashbang lightning grenades. And, oh, a pocket watch of Revify that when you die, the watch stops and you brings you back to life. Oh, yeah, I remember that one now. The death clock. <laughs> um, 
they talked to some of the local lizard folk. They got a guide arranged. They, you know, had some, you know, there, there's some mystery involving what the previous expedition was doing and where they were going. One of the party is native to Cubara and knows and is not happy about having to go to this place. Well, I guess they'll at least have one party member that's immune to fantasy malaria. Hope they brought a cleric with them. That would be the Warforged. Uh, they also, they picked up some, like, potions of disease curing and poison resistance stuff. So, that'll be nice, I guess. I imagine a Warforged wouldn't do well in the jungle because they're going to get super wet and just kind of rot. Yeah, but they're magical, so they brought less. That works. I mean, if 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 they get too much, do they rot iron? Well, I mean... Was that a joke? That was a joke. <laughs> I mean, technically, the iron will rot if they if they are out in the elements too much. Yeah, I know. Yeah, and that was my weekend hobby. How about you, Ed? Uh, I haven't done as much as I wanted to. I've just I've been exhausted lately, and it's not conducive to getting anything done. I played through a uh. I guess you'd say faking my way through a game of Sniper Elite since the base game doesn't really work well with only one person because the player who is the sniper uh, has completely hidden information from the German players. So I tried to play it as if they knew generally where he was in that location and during the German turns, uh, the soldiers would generally move in that direction. Uh, I found that it's really easy for the sniper to move across the board and complete their objectives, but it's also really easy for them to get backed into a corner and just get absolutely owned once uh, the Germans know where they are, because you can only take two hits, and yeah. So it's going to be an interesting one to play. The rules are pretty concise. They seem to... The game seems to go fast, you have 10 turns as a sniper to complete an objective. If you complete one, it resets the turn track and you get another 10 to uh, complete the other one. And at least play on my own, that seemed to go pretty fast because there's only a select number of options that each player can take. So you're not sorting through like 20 different things you could possibly do on your turn. Wait, you said 10 turns? Yep. Nine, 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 nine. <laughs> They should have, having it be nine turns just for that joke would have been an excellent Easter egg for that game. Yeah, I, I agree. In theory, uh, the game can support up to four players because each board has three little zones on it. Each zone is controlled by a different officer and each officer has three little Nazi grunts that go with him. And I the game wouldn't really change much having more than two players. The only thing that I could see being different is that having three players on the German side, you basically have more brain power in trying to figure out where the sniper is because one player may notice something or make a connection that the other two players might not. So, Do all the German players win together? Yep. They all win or lose together. Alright, so in that case, what you should really do is institute a thing where, like, the German player that actually makes the capture is the real winner. 
to... He gets the Iron Cross. Yeah, he gets the Iron Cross or something so that there is an incentive for the German players to communicate less. Ooh. That and would, thus, even that would be fitting for... And uh, it's more historically accurate, yes. Yeah, for the actual power structure of the German army. Um, there's also a dedicated set of solo rules, and they came up with like a whole other set of cards, and there's special dice you use for solo rules, and it's got a whole separate rulebook. So it seems like that was the thing that they realized was going to happen, and it's not just kind of an afterthought of like, oh yeah, here's some solo rules. They actually did quite a bit of work to make sure that you can play it as one player as well. Yeah, if we've learned anything in the last two years, it's that dedicated solo rules are a great way to help sell a game. Yep. Um, I'm excited for it. I think it's going to be a good one. Uh, there's now five games in the Sniper Elite video game series, so I can see this being an easy one to make expansions for. You would just need to sell a set that has, you know, new boards and new sets of cards, and I can see that being fairly inexpensive. Or if you wanted to get a little bit more expensive, you could throw in some themed miniatures like Africa Corps guys or... I don't know how you distinguish the dudes in France. A Nazi zombie army expansion would be interesting since that's a spinoff. No, no, no. Nazi werewolves. Um, I don't think there are Nazi werewolves in the Nazi zombie army series. Well, no, I'm just saying you have a castle with an evil Nazi scientist who is making Nazi werewolves. And there you go. There's your... Oh, uh, there's your spin-off game. Yeah, because the the NZA um, spin-off for the Sniper Elite series, it's a lot of fun, but the actual way that the game plays is very different from the regular Sniper game. So if they wanted to do a separate spin-off for the board game, it probably had to be something more like a branded uh, Zombicide spin-off than anything else. But I do like the idea of doing, like, werewolves if you had a castle and you're trying to, like, assassinate the werewolf or Yeah, the scientists like that. making them or the officer in charge. Because the werewolves would have different ways of tracking the sniper because they can smell Ooh, and stuff. counter-sniper. Yeah, there. Yeah. See, there's a whole bunch of stuff you could do with that that would be fun. Yeah, because they, they're already firmly entrenched in that camp uh, B-movie aesthetic. So they could they could definitely pull off something else with that as well. Play a little bit of D&D. &D. Uh, the players made an unholy alliance and then went off to go do some missions and accidentally left their NPC healer in the castle with some cultists. So we'll see how that plays out. Hey, you should mention that the PCs got some dogs so that they could have a sled. A dog sled. Oh yeah, they got uh, they got dog sleds now. So no more no more trekking through the snow. Now it's dashing through the snow. As far as painting, not a whole lot. I got my airbrush all fixed up, so now it actually seems to work. And I got some special, uh, what do you call it, airbrush medium that seems to help things work a lot better than just giving it either the regular paint medium or straight water. And it's been good for kind of cheating my way to an OSL effect for the Wicked Witch that I'm doing for the paint contest. Cool. That's about it. All right. Hey, we can hobby. But speaking of castles full of evil scientists and wicked witches... 
Hey, look at that. I made an unintentional segue. Yay! Ravenloft is a classic Dungeons & Dragons setting. It was first introduced in the 1983 module I-6, titled simply Ravenloft. It's D&D's gothic horror setting. I'm assuming that it's filled with a bunch of hipster Raven college students and they all live in lofts. No. That's all I need to know about this. There setting. are a group of were ravens that are good guys. So that's that's a fun thing. Um, but Ravenloft is interesting because rather than a standard world located on the prime material plane, Ravenloft is located in a sort of somewhere on the shadow fell and is a collection of pocket dimensions slash demi-planes consisting of a number of domains, each of which has a specific focus on, like, a certain gothic horror theme. Uh, these can be as big as a planet or as small as a train. A ghost train. <laughs> each domain is controlled by a being known as a Dark Lord that has some level of control over the domain, but is also bound by it and tormented by it in some manner. So the setting was originally created by Tracy and Laura Hickman, who have created a number of other things, and I'm sure we'll talk about them again. They had played a D&D game and had run into a vampire antagonist and found it to be really dumb because it was just a vampire sitting at the bottom of a dungeon. And so they decided they wanted to create a vampire villain who had fleshed out motivations and history. This eventually became the Ravenloft module that we kind of know now. They playtested it on Halloween for several years and then got hired by TSR to turn it into official content. It was an immediate success and got published like and republished several times in first edition. And then in second edition, the Ravenloft went from being just this country of Barovia with a vampire and the castle of Ravenloft and became a full setting with the, like, demi-planes and stuff with the Realm of Terror box set released in 1990, which won an Origin Award the next year. That's fancy. Yeah, it's a big deal for gaming. In 2nd and 3rd edition, the domains were kind of established almost like a planet. There was a continent surrounding Barovia, who was the, which was the original country from the that has Castle Ravenloft and the Vampire Strahd. But in 5th edition, this has changed somewhat so that each domain is its own little pocket surrounded by mists, which you have to, like, travel through these mists to get to the other domains, and it's sort of a dimensional thing. Uh, you can also get pulled in from other worlds by these strange mists, like you're walking down the road in... Faerun and like mists roll in and when they clear up suddenly you're in Barovia. Uh this is I'm pretty sure that's how uh one of the Baldur's Gate comics comic books ended up in uh, Barovia. They just kind of wandered into some mist and it's like, "Oh snap. Yeah. Everything here is terrifying." Yeah, no, that is how the current 5th edition uh Curse of Strahd module starts. Your characters are walking down the road, mists roll in, you keep walking, the mists clear. And you're at the gates of the kingdom of Barovia. It's just the ultimate dick move. It's like, hey man, I'm just trying to get home. Well, the mists are an element of the demi-plane of dread that all of this stuff is in. And they 
pluck people from other realities to torment them. In 4th edition, the setting was mentioned in the Manual of the Plains as being located in the Shadowfell, but there was never an official setting book for it. They just kind of mentioned that, oh yeah, that still exists, but we're not going to tell you anything about it. Make it make it up yourself. That was what they wanted you to do. 5th edition, however, saw the highly successful revamp of the classic Ravenloft module with the new Curse of Strahd campaign book. Curse of Strahd was a combination between one of the main 5th edition designers and the original writers, uh, Tracy and Laura Hickman. Uh, they worked together to basically bring it into 5th edition and revitalize it and turn it into a new adventure that maintained all of the classic elements that made the original so popular. Uh, this was got reprinted and they did a like fancy revamped edition. And then they followed that up with a Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft, uh, which was slightly less successful than the Curse of Strahd campaign book, but provides a solid foundation for people wanting to run a horror campaign. It features 39 domains of little, like, snips of horror settings. Is one of them a zombie apocalypse setting? Yes, and we will talk yes. about that one. We're not going to talk about all of them. I've picked out uh, five or six that I find most interesting uh, and most important, I guess. And we're going to talk about those. They are done in a variety of details. Some of them have like multi-page sections describing who's in charge and what's going on and uh, adventure ideas and maybe a map. And then some of them are just like a little snippet, which is kind of disappointing. I would have liked a little more for those little snippet ones. But um, let's talk about some of the most interesting ones, starting, of course, with Barovia. This is the classic, the, La the land of Count Strad von Zorovich, the setting of Curse of Strad and the location of Castle Ravenloft. It's a take on the classic Dracula mythos. There's lots of vampires, there's lots of other monstrosities. The land is a valley surrounded by steep mountains, sort of Transylvania style. It contains several towns, a massive castle slash dungeon, a number of strange half-abandoned ruins, perfect for adventurers to delve into to learn the history of the land and how to defeat the vampire ruler. It's a great campaign setting because it's just large enough to provide a bunch of interesting things for the players, but not so large that it seems like you're missing out by not visiting everywhere. And the whole mists thing means that it's hard for players to like wander off to go do something in another kingdom. They're kind of stuck there. Where's the exit? Uh, you have to kill Strahd to get the, the exit. He's the ruler of the land. And in order to leave through the mists, you got to kill him first. Damn it! This is like this is like in a video game when you end up on some quest that's way higher high level than you, and you're like, "Well, shit! Now I gotta finish it, and there's no way I can get out of here." Well, the nice bit is there's all these side quests around that will level up and will tell you how to kill Strahd. Uh, plus, he's a fun villain. You can play him in a number of different ways, but in general, Count Strahd is a, an interesting villain. He has a motivation. Um, he's searching for the reincarnation of his lost love, and he's been searching for it for hundreds of years, and every time he finds it, he fucks it up again. And that's kind of his torment. 
So basically, vampire Mr. Freeze. Um, that's how I would play him, just to be a, just to be a jerk. <laughs> a little. The thing is, this was originally published in 1983, so. It, vastly predates that interpretation of Mr. Freeze. Got it. So Mr. Freeze is just Batman villain Strahd. Now now I feel like I want to add in like a Barovian Batman. Have him be a literal man bat. You could totally do that, yeah. Although that might be more suitable for some of the other settings. Not the next one though, because the next one is Blutzbur. And Blutzpur is a Lovecraftian cosmic horror realm. Terrifying. It is a planet. It is a an inhospitable and alien surface dotted with cyclopean ruins and impossibly large mountains covered in, like, magical storms. And it, 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 you cannot live on the surface. But underground, Mind Flayers work in maze-like laboratories to keep their god brain alive. This is the one instance where I've heard the term Cyclopean Ruins and could actually believe that literal Cyclopses built those objects that are now ruined. Yeah, it kind of makes sense for this. Um, so basically it's an inhospitable Lovecraftian nightmare scape and then maze-like laboratories where mind flayers are performing strange eldritch experiments and like psychic nonsense to try and keep the god brain, elder brain thing that lives there alive um it has some cool like alien abduction vibes because the mind flayers can kind of reach into the other realms and pluck people out plus psychic horrors lost memories and like all sorts of strange and eldritch shit that you can have put your players through if you really want to honestly the first thing that came to mind was stranger things but that could possibly just be the the pop culture zeitgeist bringing that to mind yeah you could do a stranger things-esque campaign where Blutzpur essentially is the upside down where you know your players are in a village and they keep seeing strange occurrences and then they get plucked into this Lovecraftian nightmare scape for brief periods of time and then dropped back into their little village actually now that I think about it uh I think I listened to a D&D live play podcast that did a spell jammer uh campaign and one of the planets they went to, I think that may have been where they got the inspiration for the planet. Because it was the whole thing. It was like subterranean and it was all just gigantic mazes of mind flare laboratories. It was like if they cross that with like alien. Because I know that this particular DM, he likes to just kind of mash everything together. So I think that's probably where that came from. So that's cool. Yeah, it's a really neat like and kind of terrifying cosmic horror setting, which is nice that they have a cosmic horror setting. The next one is also quite cool because it's based on classic stuff as well. Lamordia. It's a frozen steampunk-esque land where flesh-crafting artificers work to protect their cities from an endless frozen winter. The Dark Lord is Dr. Victra Mordenheim, a mad scientist who, uh, perfected the, like, flesh-crafting arts. Less as magic and more as science. It's Frankenstein. It's a take mm -hmm. on Frankenstein. Uh, it's a cool place if you want to run a more steampunk campaign, because there are steamships, there are, like, 
mining towns that have, you know, produce industrial smoke and stuff. And the Academy of Mordenheim is full of science, scientists and artificers and stuff. It has a focus on science, on artifice, and of course on the misapplication of medical technology to create bizarre monsters. Also, Dr. Mordenheim can transplant brains, so if you want to do crazy body swap stuff, this is your setting. <laughs> nice. Take the Goliath, put him in the body of a halfling. Definitely. Um, it's an interesting setting. It's got some cool stuff. Uh, Dr. Mordenheim is chasing after the like perfected thing that she made and stuffed into the body of someone she cared about, and that person is fleeing because... Dr. Victor Mordenheim is insane. Awesome. Girl boss scientist. Yeah, basically. They just changed up the genders because why not? It's 2020. Gender is a construct. Do whatever the hell you want. Gender is a construct. In this case, a flesh golem. This message brought to you by Pride Month. Yes. The next one is one you're going to like. Falconvia. Uh, Falcon. Yeah, that's close enough. It's a nation ruled by a brutal warlord on the brink of being overrun by hordes of zombies. Woo! For the record, I was into zombie apocalypses before they became popular in the popular culture. Oh, so you were into zombie apocalypses before Dawn of the Dead came out? Yes, before I even existed. Every month, a wave of zombies stumbles out of the mists and crashes against the defenses that have been raised around the few remaining pockets of civilization. Also, the Brutal Warlord is basically Vlad the Impaler. Nice. So anyone who refuses to, like, follow orders and help in the defense of this civilization is gonna get put up on a stake. Well, I mean, why not just be... Why can't he just be helpful and just impale all those zombies on stakes? It's a she, actually. Nice. And they try, but it, the zombies do not make it easy. The warlord's the only one who knows this bit, but all the zombies appear to be people that have been killed on her orders or by her. Oh no, my past actions are literally coming back to haunt me. Yeah, that's the torment that the realm has for the Dark Lord in it. Um, it's a fantastic setting for running a zombie apocalypse because it allows you to basically pull the characters into a zombie apocalypse without having to destroy an existing setting or come up with a real reason for, like, what's causing the zombie apocalypse. Because it's just a feature of this setting. I feel like Eberron zombie apocalypse could be interesting. You could do some cool stuff with Eberron zombie apocalypse, but I feel like a zombie apocalypse with the level of magic they have doesn't work as well. That's why you make them the uh, the speedy, fast zombies from the mid-2000s. Okay, so 28 Days Later zombies? Yeah, yep. that's that's what you'd need for an Eberron zombie apocalypse, is fast zombies. <laughs> and, like, rage zombies and stuff, yeah. So the next one is Kalakari, which is inspired by Indian-slash-Hindu mythology. Nice. Where a civil war rages between three heirs vying for the Sapphire Throne. 
the queen Ramaya was betrayed and killed. She cursed the world and returned to life, and those who betrayed her were given monstrous forms. So it's an endless civil war where monsters lead both sides, vast jungles and rivers hide refugees and ancient secrets, and there's this city caught in the midst of like a bloody conflict and also like intrigue and power struggles as the merchants and nobles like try to figure out which side they should be supporting. Do they have the uh do they have the ancient chariots of the gods flying around dropping uh bronze age nukes? They do not quite go that far. Damn. They have war elephants and war wyverns. Also cool. Uh one side is led by a death knight who's the one who did the, like, she was betrayed and killed and came back to life as a death knight and has sworn to reclaim her throne. And the other is led by her siblings, who have been turned into a Rakshasa and an Arkanaloth, respectively. Arkanaloth. I don't think I know what that one is. Uh, basically a magic jackal. Nice. It, it, it If a Rakshasa was more of a jackal and was all about using just all the magic, they're a demon of some class. They show up in a few things. They're they're mid. They're like Rakshasa in terms of power level. Maybe a little stronger. It's got some really cool like setting elements. There's the Tower of Traitors, which <laughs> is raised by the Death Knight and is covered in the skulls of those who she killed for betraying her. Yeah, there's there's some really interesting stuff, and it's a good spot if you want to try playing in a setting based on a culture that is a lot less explored in Dungeons and Dragons. Yeah, I don't just in general within like the fantasy gaming community, I'd like to see more exploration of mythology and culture that's not uh western european, but you also need to figure out a way that doesn't feel colonialist or orientalist as well. Yeah, I like this one because it's such a little compact setting. Uh, you're, you're basically dealing with a small nation state and an internal struggle. There's not going to be a lot of colonial elements because there's nowhere to go. There's nowhere for people to come from and act in a colonial manner. Everyone's just stuck in this endless civil war. Can't colonize if there's no other continents. Exactly. Yeah, it's uh, it's got some cool thought, some cool ideas, and there's some interesting like lost ruins and stuff that you can visit in the out in the jungles as well so yeah that that's one that i think is interesting and is worth a visit and the last one is tepest a land of pastoral villages and farms worshiping a benevolent deity known as mother she's not benevolent i'm guessing yeah beneath the surface it's really fucked up villagers make dark bargains with hidden fae in order to have children Strange, one-eyed watchers claim to work directly for the goddess, and the annual harvest festivals, four times a year, end with a bloody sacrifice. Just don't make deals with the fae, just don't. Or if you do, have a Modron lawyer with you. Yeah, in this case, it's the only way that you can have children in the setting. Oops. Uh, it's inspired by folk horror stuff, like Wicker Man and Midsommar and... Nice. All, all those sort of classic, like, something's terribly wrong in this pastoral village. In this case, yeah, there, there's a bunch of backstory, but it's kind of a mystery, so I'm not going to spoil all of it. It's a pastoral setting with dark magical secrets. I feel like if I ran that campaign, I would 
feel almost compelled to insert a Nicolas Cage character. That would be pretty great. A Nicolas Cage, like, someone, an NPC who came along with the party and who gets killed by bees. Yep. And is wearing a bear costume the whole time. Yeah. Maybe he's a druid and actually changes into a bear. Yes. Yes. That's that's how we do it. it it's a very unsettling campaign area. And, you know, the folk horror is somewhat underused in things like Dungeons and Dragons, which is weird because you feel like folk horror would fit a fantasy world pretty well. I feel like that kind of horror, though, it's like so like small and like either personal or particular to that particular area that it's hard to actually get like the horror vibes into your players. Yeah, I suppose. I feel like just kind of horror in general is difficult to generate as an actual like atmosphere in RPG gaming. Like you can definitely use it as like a setting and like spooky experiences, but actually like making your players nervous as if they were playing a horror video game or watching a horror movie. I feel like that's going to be a lot more difficult. It's uh, something that is better done in settings beyond Dungeons and Dragons, I think. Yeah. Or in games besides Dungeons and Dragons, get an actual horror thing. There's, um, what's it called? There's the Candles one, I think is probably the best example of a, like, really solid horror RPG. Hmm. Haven't heard of that one. Ten Candles. Uh, essentially the premise of it is that you, you have 10 actual candles on the table Mm -hmm. and like, as stuff happens, you put them out one by one. Nice. Um, and then when the last one goes out, the game ends. I like that. Uh, and it's supposed to be like a more tragic horror where whatever the story is, it ends when the last candle goes out and everyone is... There's not a happy ending. Bro, I just came here for some fun RPG night, and now I'm just bummed out. Yeah, it's it's great for tragic horror one-shots. Kind of reminds me of uh, the Morkborg system, how the game can just randomly end because the whole premise is that the world is ending, and then, you know, it can just be like, oh, snap, the world ended. You guys did not get to your objective in time. Not that it probably would have made much of a difference anyway. At some point, we're probably going to have to do an episode about Ten Candles because it is such a interesting role-playing system. I feel like once we get over to October and actual spooky season, we'll have to do a whole thing on just spooky gaming in general. Right now, we're like we're on like a coincidental halfway to Halloween special. Yes. Well, I mean, we're trying to do these things in order, so maybe we'll do a full review of Curse of Strahd as our, like, Halloween spooky season kickoff. Spooky! So those are, like, the six settings that I found most interesting and most worth talking about, but there are plenty of others covering, covered in variety of degrees of detail. Uh, a ghost train that was the last one in the Mornlands of Eberron an Egyptian-themed desert of ancient tombs and curses ruled by a, like, mummy lord. Fist of Khonshu. Fist of Khonshu. <laughs> that's the answer to that. that. That's the monk's answer to that, at least. 
a wasteland of mad wizards creating like eldritch experiments on the people that live there. Um, a city of masked balls and treachery, you know, if you want some Mask of the Red Death kind of stuff going on. A uh, domain of werewolves obsessed with, like, performances and musical stuff. Um, a carnival. A carnival hiding dark secrets. Carnival, that could be a good one for uh, mucking around in the Feywild. Yeah, well, the carnival's interesting because... The domain is just this carnival that basically travels to other places. Oh, snap. The haunted carnival's back. Get it out of here. Yeah, basically the haunted carnival comes to town. Like, it starts with posters for the carnival just appearing in the town. And then the mists roll in, and when they leave, there's a carnival on the outside of town. It's like the antithesis of uh, the uh, witch-like campaign. Because I think that one starts with a Feywild carnival. Except this one's evil. Yeah, there's Fey in this one trying to, like, trick you away. But the the carnival itself is full of, non like, horror stuff. Um, there's a land where everyone who dies returns as a ghost. Uh, let's see. There's a land where... Oh, there's a land that is the other flip side of Mask of the Red Death where there's a ongoing plague. Triggered. With swarms of rats and a were-rat who's, like, running the city and trying to keep everyone from dying of the plague. But also might be responsible for it. It's, yeah. There's all sorts of things. Anything you would want to run a horror game is available here. That said, there are two issues with the setting that I need to talk about. The first one is a like, setting issue, and the second one is specific to the most recent Van Richten's Guide to Ravenloft book. And the first one is the Vastani. They are... They have been one of the setting's most problematic elements. Oh, boy. The Vastani are a nomadic ethnic group that can travel through the mists that separate the domains and serve as one of the elements linking the setting together. They're based on the real-life Romani people. Oh, bro. Bro, don't. Don't do that. In older editions, they were not treated well. They were described as being superstitious, uncivilized, and heavy drinkers, able to curse and hypnotize players with the evil eye. Just don't. The Rom the Romani have been through enough. Yeah, that's my feeling. And it's only been relatively recently, um, with the revamped, like, it's been since 2020, that they've kind of started to clean this up, giving more nuance and care to the portrayal of a group clearly based on a real-world people and that have not had a great time historically. So they're not... For a long time, they were not treated well. They're kind of trying to fix that. But, uh, yeah. The Vistani are problematic. Just make something, make something new. Not everything needs a real-world inspiration. Well, see, the thing is, it made sense in the setting when you started with the Kingdom of Barovia that's, you know, sort of based on Transylvania-esque and Eastern European areas having a stand-in for the Romani that were nomads that could travel between the different dom domains through the mists and stuff actually makes a lot of sense for the setting. It's just that they 
treated them poorly and uh, were kind of racist about it. That was problematic. Um, so they're, they're trying to fix it. I just wish they hadn't waited so long to try to fix it. You could have done better in third edition when you published a lot of stuff about the setting. Waiting until 2020 to do it is, uh, yeah. Come on, Wizards of the Coast, do better. The, the other issue with the setting and with the most recent setting book is a complaint that I've seen on the internet and I agree with it. And it's just a lazy thing. Most of the Dark Lords don't have custom stat blocks. What? Yeah, the the rulers of the individual realms just say, use the stat block of this specific monster or NPC from the Dungeon Master's Guide or the Player's Handbook or the Monster Manual. Lazy. Yeah, that it's super lazy. You already put in a bunch of work to make the domain interesting. Would it really kill you to, like, adjust some stats, make thematic abilities for this handful of villains? Because there's only... You'd only need to do, like, 20 of these at most. Um, and that's prob probably less than 20. Because some of them, like Strahd, actually have their own stat blocks in the Monster Manual. Uh, Strahd has his, Strahd shows up in the monster manual. He has his specific vampire stat block. So you can do, you can skip Strahd. But like the one that's Dr. Frankenstein is just says, use the spy stat block. That's boring and doesn't seem to apply. Yeah, it's really weak and it's, it's one of the weakest elements of the book. I like it, almost everything else it does, but you need to come up with some stat blocks for these people because they're really boring. And especially in a game that is, you know, that has combat and fighting people and you, you might want to defeat these Dark Lords in order to escape, you got to give them something. So yeah, if you're going to like republish this book or adjust it or something, fix that first. I mean, the other thing is that I don't really give a shit about Van Richten, who is the, like, introductory... He He's a monster hunter who travels through the setting, and he has a group of people that go with him and act as NPCs and can show up in your campaign. I just don't care about any of them. But that's a me thing and not a campaign-specific thing. So yeah, Ravenloft. It's a setting for gothic horror that has a lot of really cool elements. It has a good through line of being a collection of horror stories, each of which is surrounded by these mists and controlled by a singular being known as the Dark Lord and sort of tucked away in a corner of the multiverse that where you can get to it, but you can't leave it. So I think it's a really good element for Dungeons and Dragons to have. I'm happy that they have continued to publish it and that 5th edition has a setting book for it. First time we've actually had one of those. And um, I recommend looking into it if you want to do some horror stuff, even if you're just going to be pulling your players into the zombie apocalypse setting for a short period. Brains. Yeah, or if you're going to you know, 
drop the uh like Egyptian one into a desert in your own campaign setting and just use those elements for the desert that you've got. You could do that. It you know, you stumble through some mists on the edge of the desert and oh, you're now in a mummy curses campaign. Whoopsie daisy. Yeah, there's all sorts of opportunities and stuff that you can use and draw from for this book. So I'd say in that element, it's pretty good. Just more stat blocks, please. It does have a neat little selection of monsters at the end of the book, um, including the Nosferatu vampires, um, Brains in a Jar. Brain in a Jar. haven't seen that one in a while. Yeah, Brain in a Jar. Uh, classic. Some alternate zombies that are like swarms of limbs or like <laughs> a giant collection of many zombies stuffed into a monstrous ball kind of thing. I like the uh, the limb swarm. Yeah, it gives you some like more thematic zombies to throw at your players. I feel like the limb swarm would be a good opportunity for weird modeling. Yeah, it's also good for low-level parties because, you know, you, you can get overrun by zombies if there's too many of them. But a limb swarm is terrifying and easier to defeat. I'm getting my ass kicked by a literal foot. So that's Ravenloft. It's a setting that's been around for a while and is quite good. And I recommend looking into it if you want to run something horrifying. Do it. So that brings us to the last segment on our podcast, Board Game Corner. And like I said earlier, I'm going to talk about Soul, Last Days of a Star. Uh, published by Elephant Laboratories via Kickstarter in 2016-2017. It's a game for one to five players about resource gathering and worker placement, sort of, because you got to move your workers around. It's set in a solar system doomed by an upcoming supernova. Each player is a civilization trying to gather enough energy to power their arc ship and flee the solar system to a new one that isn't going to explode. It has some interesting mechanics with how the workers move, how resource structures are built, and how the motherships like orbit the board meaning that you're forced to use the resource structures built by other players and not just your own ones. Um, I'm going to take cool this. Thank you. Yeah, it's got some cool mechanics. It's got some neat abilities to like change how the game is played through the instability cards and using different instability effects that can be triggered when you do stuff with the sun. I backed the Kickstarter, and I quite enjoy the game i need to play it more but it's good uh the only downside if you're interested in it is that it's between printings so uh good luck finding it i guess it it came out on kickstarter and they're talking about reprinting it but they haven't yet so uh you you might be able to find it on ebay or something it's definitely a game that is worth checking out if you like economic strategy games without heavy card or dice mechanics uh there's no dice at all and there's no, like, playing cards to dramatically change what you're doing. There's cards that you can play, but you can only ever have one of them stored up. So you can play a card to do a small little thing, essentially. Also, the turns are really quick because you get to choose one of three things to do on each turn. And then pass it over. 
So it moves quite quickly around the table. And, you know, it ends when the sun goes supernova and destroys all your stuff. I was so close to escaping, or at least I thought I was, but I did not. I've won both times I've played, but also the second time I played, half the people didn't realize that they should be converting their energy into momentum to send to their ship. Oops. So they skipped the final step of, like, they gathered energy and then didn't pass it to victory points, essentially. <laughs> um, so they all lost and doomed their civilizations. Doom! I, I got a better result in the first game I played, though. I fled the solar system much faster in that one. But yeah, that's Soul, Last Days of a Sun. It's cool. I like it. It's worth checking out. Um, if you're into that sort of thing. And that is our podcast. As always, thank you for listening. Follow us on Twitter at, at NoelCountry. Follow us on Instagram if you want. I don't post much. Um, like, rate, subscribe. Tell other people about the podcast. Demand that they listen to it. Uh, turn into a vampire and suck their blood and force your newly created thralls to listen to the podcast. Um, summon a horde of zombies, each of whom will be forced to listen to the podcast. Brains. Podcast. That's, that's a better one. Yeah, do all of those things. Ed, you got anything you want to promote? Uh, while you're on the internet, check out our new Zillow listing for the Knoll Country Loft of Ravens. It is a room literally stuffed full of ravens. It has rent control, so it's going to be affordable. But if you if you want to actually do something that's real, uh, you can check out my Instagram at Animadness. I've been posting some stuff there. Um, you can follow me posting weird stuff on our Twitter and give your actual real money dollars to uh, some charities for LGBTQIA plus rights, reproductive justice, and Ukrainian resettlement. That's about all I got this week. Uh, support your local game store. Yep, that's uh, a good Especially one. if your local game store is having like a Pride Month sale or something. That might as well then. Give your yep. money to someone who might actually be supporting Pride rather than someone who just changes their logo to have a rainbow on it for the month of June. Yep. And uh, as I learned this week, if you if you have a gift card to an unspecified internet retailer and you buy a board game from them, uh, when it arrives, the gods of the FLGS will have worked over your board game like a mob boss does a snitch. So, yeah. Get your board games in Definitely. <clears throat> or, you know, pick them up from a board game store that does curbside pickup if you don't want to go in person. I demand curbside pickup. Um, I demand go, no. Go Knowles!